the Plumley Pod, episode 32. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education, the Plumley Pod. Hello and welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm unfortunately still your host, Sarah Plumley, but there's a saving grace because today's guest is somebody you've been dying to hear from. And I know it's Bob. Yeah, Bob. You know Bob. Of course you know Bob. Bob's cartoons, the Bob. Yeah, that Bob. It's Bob Moran. He is a husband. He is a father. He is an amazingly talented illustrator and cartoonist and quite frankly, a champion artist and He gets to live to see the results of his art. How extraordinary. You can find all of his masterpieces at bobmoran.co.uk. And sorry for embarrassing you terribly at the start, Bob, but just welcome and thank you so much for what you've contributed thus far, particularly in the last two and a half years. We are all extremely grateful here. Oh, that's very kind. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Well, it's not just really kind. I've literally had parents crying down the Zoom to me. It's a bit weird. Like, it's a little bit strange, like having dads crying to me about paintings. It's not really how I imagined my career to pan out. I'm not going to lie. And also having mothers giving me what for about, well, he's not just a painter. He's not just an artist. You should hear him speak. I read his tweets. He can write. Yes, I know. I've been reading his tweets for quite a few years now. You, sir, can write. You can't just paint. And what's so, what stands out the most, I have to say, is I'm no writer, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I like to express myself in words I can't draw to save my life. And my students laugh at me because I, my stick men, they need some work, let's just say. Something you couldn't help with because I'd need someone way below your level to start me off. But anyway, they laugh at my drawings, but that's good because it kind of makes my mathematician sort of side human to them. But with regard to, draw- to drawing things, it would take me, and I, I don't say it would, I know it takes me about 1,500 to 3,000 words to say what you can say in one pencil drawing before you've even put a single color on you've already said everything and in a more incisive and astute way than I could ever manage and that resonates so much with not just parents but all people who value freedom everywhere and it's a silly question that how do you do it but I'm going to ask it anyway because whether it's answerable or not the people who admire your work are just beside themselves with how incisive you are. How, sorry, Bob, it's a terrible question, but how do you do it? It is the nightmare question in a sense, but people always ask it. How do you do what you do? Where do you get your ideas from? It's very difficult to answer because I'm not entirely sure myself, you know, if I knew exactly how to generate a killer idea that I'd sort of be able to do it automatically, you know, I don't sit down and immediately draw an amazing cartoon I have to sit and work things out you know what do I want to say who's going to be in it how do I say it how do I whittle it down make it as readable and simple as possible sometimes it takes hours you know I mean there are rare days where you get the lightning bolt moment and it just comes fully formed but most of the time you you do actually have to sit and figure it out and, and it's very hard to understand what's going on in your brain when that's happening you know I suppose It's something I've always been able to do to an extent from a very young age is in simple terms, draw a picture that made people laugh and made some kind of point, satirical point, even when I was very little. 
and we go on like a family holiday, I'd be in the back of the car doing little comic strips of funny things my parents were doing. So it's always been there and I'm not sure where it comes from. And I guess the the last couple of years, it's that combined with a kind of real sense of urgency and passion and anger. And I sort of thought, it's a weapon I have against all this. You know, it might not be much, but it's all I have. It might make a little dent in their armor. So I, you know, basically thought, turn it up to 11 and do as much damage as possible. It has certainly worked. You know, being overwhelmed and not expecting your career to have people being so emotional with things. Exactly the same for me. I never expected my work to have this kind of impact. When I meet people, they can be very emotional and and I get emotional as well. You know, I was going to be a newspaper cartoonist for, you know, producing gentle, right-leaning, conservative cartoons that were like a little nudge in the ribs for politicians. And they'd often buy them to put in their downstairs loose, that kind of thing. It wasn't this desperate, you know, emotional humanitarian crisis stuff that I imagined I was going to be doing. But now I'm doing it, I realize, oh, of course, that's what I was always supposed to do. You know, that's why I have this gift. And I'm a lot happier for it. You know, I'm a lot, despite the nightmare we're living through, and I wish it wasn't happening in terms of my work, I never felt more inspired and had more of a sense of purpose for what I'm doing. So, yeah. As I'm sure most of the listeners already know, Bob was a cartoonist for The Telegraph for at least a decade. I'm not supposed to know this, and my husband listens to these podcasts, so I'm dead when he hears this one. But I used to secretly buy The Telegraph. I don't buy what I call the fake news media, the mainstream media. I don't, but I did. I bought The Telegraph, but it was because I was a big cricket fan. I loved cricket. I played cricket. I coached cricket and it was only the Telegraph sports pages that really knew how to talk about cricket. And so you can't just go in and, if I could have, no offence, Bob, I would have just gone in and bought the Telegraph sports pages so I could just do the cricket. But you have to buy the whole thing. And of course, often your cartoons are right there. So I was well aware of you before what I called the pandemic. But since that struck, when did you know, if I may ask, when did you know that there was something wrong? When did you stop making cartoons that would, you know, jab the odd politician to behave a bit better and actually they'd buy a copy to stick in their loo. When did something say to you, something's really wrong here? When did that happen for you? Well, it was quite early on in terms of like the suspicion and the kind of concern about this doesn't make a lot of sense. This is weird. There's something unusual going on very early, you know, before the lockdown or anything. It was kind of, I remember it was mid-February when it was still very much contained to a Chinese story. and. I would have discussions with the editors about, you know, oh, this virus thing going on in China. And it was very much like, oh, yet another virus from China they're trying to scare people about. It'll be gone in a week or so. And then when it was declared a pandemic and the news started coming out of Italy, or maybe slightly before the Italy thing even, I one day I said, shall I do something on this? Shall I just do one cartoon about this? And they said, yeah, you know, but very much... It felt like another one of these stories that would just be gone in a few weeks. You know, that's part of my job is sort of analyzing the different stories in the news. And you have to figure out which ones are going to stick around and which ones are not really worth bothering with. And it escalated and escalated. And then the Italy thing happened. And then people started talking about locking down. And I went through this phase, I think a lot of people went through, 
where there was maybe two or three weeks where I was a bit, oh, should we be careful? Maybe it's something. And obviously, my oldest daughter has cerebral palsy and epilepsy. And when they released all the lists of who was at risk, CP was on there. So we kind of thought to be safe. We actually took her out of school, you know, before they closed the schools for a couple of weeks because we didn't know. And then I think around the time they actually said we're going to do a lockdown, as people have been saying, pointing out recently, there had been so much in the preceding couple of weeks about new information about what this thing was, how not dangerous or unprecedented it was in any way, how lockdowns were never part of any plan. And then clearly, I don't think this got focused on enough, but just the ethical lunacy of lockdowns, the total lack of any moral justification for doing this. But I just thought at that point, this is so obvious, that this is so clearly nuts, that very quickly, everyone will realize because, you know, people aren't stupid and they're not all morally corrupt. So people will understand and this will be a situation where governments will have to back out of it, which they do all the time. You know, they start down these roads and then they think, oh, people can see through this. They can see what we're doing. So they'll make an excuse and they'll just... So because of that, and I think maybe some other journalists felt like that, there wasn't quite the same sense of urgency. There wasn't this idea that, oh, this is really serious, because I genuinely thought that if the politicians didn't do that, most of the journalists would. Most of the journalists would start pointing out, this doesn't make any sense. This is complete lunacy. And then once we got past that three weeks to flatten the curve phase, and they then said, yeah, we're going to do it for at least six months, and this is it now, that was when I thought, okay, this is an emergency. But it's not a viral emergency. It's got nothing to do with health. We're in an emergency. We're in a crisis of sanity and morality. And, you know, I thought that the thing is that this is not a road you go down with any easy way of backing up. You're going to be setting precedents here. You are fundamentally changing the way people interact with each other, the way they think about themselves, the relationship between the public and government, the way we treat children. Immediately, you could see, like, what, what the hell are we doing to children here? And so I guess that it was probably by mid-April that I completely changed my output in terms of the kind of messages and the unequivocal opposition to it, I guess. A lot of my early work in February, March time is still quite gentle and just kind of, oh, this is all a bit silly, isn't it? That, that kind of vibe. Now, obviously, still being at the paper, there was a point beyond which I couldn't really go. There were certain things I still couldn't draw about. But I did have discussions with editors early on, and I said, look, I don't think there's any moral justification for this. Whatever you want to say about the science and the models and the numbers, morally, this is wrong. And they agreed, and they said, that's fine. We're happy for you to go on that tack with your work. So I actually had quite a lot of freedom for the first, I'd say, eight or nine months, you know, and actually my cartoons got progressively harsher. And, you know, certainly by October 2020, I was producing stuff that none of them would want to put in their downstairs loose. And it changed. You changed yeah, your market. Changed. <laughs> your market changed. Well, my, my audience <laughs> From that changed. point onwards, different kinds of people wanted to put your cartoons in their loose. Yeah, exactly. 
And I was aware that I was gaining this completely new audience. And my Twitter following was going up and people in different countries were getting in touch with me because they'd seen my work. And it suddenly, it wasn't just telegraph readership. In fact, I think a lot of the telegraph readership maybe didn't really understand what I was saying. So then obviously the vaccine rollout started. There was a big clampdown on my output and I was constantly being nudged in a direction of do some pro-vaccine stuff, which I wasn't happy about, you know, and that's rare. Actually, that was rare previously. You know, there weren't many times in the previous 10 years of working there where I'd ever had a problem of being steered in a particular direction, you know, do something on this because we've got a, someone writing about it or our front pages about it. I was fine with that, you know, but I thought this is so important and principles matter so much now that I'm just not, I'm not prepared to do it. And I was lucky because I was about to go off on six months of paternity leave as this started. So I kind of got away with, with it at that stage. And then shortly after I went back, it all fell apart and I ended up being fired. It's shocking to me, Bob. It really is shocking that I have no dog in the vaccine fight. I've no horse in the vaccine race. I did have childhood asthma, childhood epilepsy, and childhood eczema, all under the age of 10. Some of those diseases lasted longer. I can't say where they came from. How could I? But I was experimented on by pharma with regard to drugs for epilepsy. And Mm -hmm. at the time, my mother agreed to some medication. I don't know how experimental they said it was or wasn't, but she let me have it. It dulled my brain. My grades considerably dropped at school. I went from top sets to nearly bottom sets in six months. And I was very poorly and I was lethargic. I was slow. I was far from my earlier self and my sports suffered and everything. Then I came off the drugs because I stopped having fits for some reason. I don't know what that was, but I stopped having the drugs. And when the drugs stopped within the next battery of tests by the end of year eight, I jumped a hundred over 150 places in the year. I went straight into all of the top sets. Uh, They thought I'd done all of this revision and worked super hard. I hadn't. I'd just been taken off this medication. So whilst I I can't talk about vaccines with any kind of authority, because I don't know, I can talk about pharma medications that do harm, even though they've passed tests and even though they've been, oh, well, they stop fits. Yeah, but do you know they stop the child's brain as well? Like there's lots of you know, I, I was too young to know it wasn't my fight, but I have all the documentary evidence and I've got the certificates saying, congratulations, you've jumped 150 yeah. places in the year. Yeah, like, how yeah. does that happen? How does that happen in terms of bell well, curve and that kind of numbers? Know, so, I mean, it could have been pure <laughs> coincidence, Sarah, of course. And who knows, maybe it wasn't the drugs doing it. I mean, it sounds to me like it was probably climate change that was dulling your brain. I think I drank Space Jam special juice. I think I drank special juice and it just made me smarter. I I think I was in Space Jam. Maybe I was a child actress in that or something. And they gave me some extra (laughs) juice and it just made me, you know, made me smart again, restored me to my former position. But no, this is, so I obviously had, um, I have like a little bit of a radar where it comes to medications because I, I know how damaging they can be and what kind of harm they can cause to you. And so I was very, very sniffy from early on. My other problem was that in February, 2020. I traveled to Texas with my husband to run the Fort Worth Ultramarathon. I'd uh, only ever run one marathon. That was in 2019 in 
Oslo, the, the major marathon in Norway. Uh, I had a good day. I had a great time. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do an ultra. And I wanted to do an ultra because I wanted to make the marathon seem a bit easier because the marathons are, it's a long way. It's a really long way. So I, I was going to do an ultra, which is, this ultra was 50 kilometers, so 31 miles. A normal marathon's 26.2 miles. Okay. And I thought if I yeah. could make myself run a bit further, then I would learn what real hardship was and be grateful to just have to run a marathon. It would make my marathon times better. Yeah, okay. I know I'm crazy. I know I just love sport. But that was the mentality. So I applied for this ultra and, I, and my husband had never been to Texas and I'd been there once before to referee the Dallas Cup in 2009. He used to be a football referee. So to people outside the UK, that's soccer, but we call it football because we invented it and that's what it is. Yes. But I went to referee this tournament and I loved Texas. I was so impressed. There's men everywhere. <gasps> Real men. They, Real had, men, yeah. they had horses, they had guns, they had hats. Yeah. They looked after their women folk, they had children. And I was, I had not seen anything like this from a bit sort of metropolitan, a bit Manchester, a bit South Cheshire. I had not seen anything like this in my life. And I I just loved the place. I couldn't get enough of it. I thought, this is where I should be. These people are great. And I'm quite a tough kind of tomboy, sort of a girl. And they made me feel like a girly girl compared with everything else that was going on there. And I just, I'm like, this is where I'm supposed to be. So fast forward 10 years later, and I said, oh, I said to my husband, you've got to see Texas. I've been invited to this ultra marathon anyway by some friends and come and see Texas. We went on a big holiday for three weeks after, most of those three weeks were after I'd run it because I wanted to have some fun, you know. Yeah, so yeah. I did the marathon thing first, and then we went out to restaurants and did all that stuff. But what struck me was not just the people and the culture, which we loved. And there was two Brits, me and my husband, lecturing the Americans, the Texans, about keeping hold of their guns. Yeah, yeah. Little did we know, little because we, we don't have a television we haven't had for years. Obviously, I don't read the paper, apart from that I sometimes have the sports oh, section of the Telegraph for the cricket. Shh, shh, shh. Be quiet, be quiet. I sometimes do that. I'm sorry. But apart from that, we don't do any news, any garbage. We live our lives and we take as we find and we do what we think is right to do as decent human beings, regardless of what I call the fake news media is saying. So we had no clue what was going on. And I got this little message off the dog sitter because we'd left our beautiful chocolate Labrador here because it's not appropriate to make him travel for some race or whatever. Anyway, yeah. she said like, uh, she left this strange message and I can't remember for the life of me. And I thought, I thought, oh my God, is dog Sally on drugs? I said to my husband, is she okay? Like she left this really weird message and I wasn't being funny. I'm like, this is a strange message. And my husband's like, ah, we better turn the news on. I'm like, no, no, what, what, the television? So we, in the hotel room, we turn the news on and there's this woo flu, this China virus, there's this thing going on. And we're like, ah, well, at least we know the dog sitter's not on drugs and she's okay. She's just been watching this. All right, okay, I get it. So all right, we're a little bit like, oh, this isn't great. So we obviously had a massive journey to make from Dallas-Fort Worth back to London Heathrow, then from Heathrow to Stansted and Stansted back to France. That was the way to get home. Anyway, I said to my husband, well, we better get to the airport early because there's going to be temperature tests. If this thing's real, there's going to be all kinds of fuss at the airport. We better get there yeah. early because this is going to be crazy. So they say two hours and we got there four hours early because I thought there'd be big problems. It was a joke. We just walked through. There was nothing. There was no tests, no temperatures, no surveys. There was no doctors. There was no nothing. This was mm -hmm. at Dallas, Fort Worth. We're not talking an insignificant airport here. We're talking a major international airport, yeah. flying people to Heathrow daily. And there was nothing. There was just nothing there. And my husband and I were like, oh, uh oh, there's something. This is not right, is it? Compared with what the we just watched on the television, yeah. compared with what was happening at a major international airport. Like, I'm no genius, but if there is like a virus that is communicable via the air, 
then isn't it smart to like stop international travel like as a precaution immediately? Like I'm not a politician, but I thought that was fairly obvious, no? And based on what we've been shown from China, happening in China, I guess you might have expected to get to the airport and see people dropping dead in the airport. And that would have said, oh, I've just seen that happen with my own eyes. So maybe there is something going on. Those videos from China are the first and last time anyone ever saw somebody drop dead in the street, allegedly from this supposed virus. Yeah, you're right. Because the propaganda machine hadn't kicked in then. I mean, one of the interesting things I point out is, you know, this is silly thing keeps coming up about we should have locked down earlier, we should have locked down a week earlier, two weeks earlier. This nonsense. And the point you're talking about when the news was just there's a deadly pandemic, this deadly virus, the most dangerous thing ever spreading around. We don't really know what it is exactly. Everyone needs to be really careful. People stop going out. People lock themselves down at that point. You know, the mobility data, the whatever it's called, Google mobility data thing shows in the UK. People weren't moving about for those two weeks. It actually, they were moving around more after the lockdown was imposed, precisely because by that point, a lot of people had worked out there's nothing to worry about. There's actually nothing going on. You know, it shows that if people can see and experience with their own eyes in place a danger, they will react sensibly, you know. And the biggest problem I have with all of this is we have reached a point now where people will experience things, they'll meet people, the people around them, the place where they live, and they'll see no evidence of danger, okay? Or they will see people who are constantly ill because they've been injected with something, for example. Then they'll go and put on their television, and the television will tell them the opposite of what they've just seen. And that will be what they base their idea of reality on. And you think that, do you not understand how incredibly dangerous that is to see things happening or not happening with your own eyes and then just to be told you know you switch on television and someone in a lab coat holds up a piece of paper and says i've just written down that what you saw didn't happen and you go oh okay then okay i must be mistaken it's completely mad and it's so so dangerous for a for the human species to interact with the world in that way well that's why it's called the teller lie vision yeah, tell a lie. The vision, the tell a vision. That's why it's called that, people. That's what it is. It tells you lies. That's the purpose of it. You pay for your programming. You pay for what the powers that shouldn't be want you to think, feel, believe in any particular moment. And what you say about using your own eyes, seeing your own eyes, that's why you have been such a wonderful defensive weapon for everything that speaks freedom, everything that speaks truth. Because what you do is you show other things. So you show the alternative vision, literally a picture, literally another vision to this television, the tell-a-lie vision. And you're showing something else in a picture. They're not going to read my 5,000 words or 3,000 words. God help them if they're dead, bless them. Bless anyone who reads my garbage. It takes too long and I say things five times over. That's because I'm a teacher and we're used to having to belabor a point and explain it in five yeah. different ways because there's lots of people trying to understand one thing at the same time. That's why we repeat ourselves ad nauseam. So I'm aware that I repeat myself and I am aware that I explain the same thing three to five times over. It's because I have to in my profession. However, you don't have to do that. You have one picture, one vision, and yeah, your key skill is distillation. Whilst you are a beautiful artist, you're a peerless cartoonist and illustrator, in my opinion. And I don't mean artist in like a, I'm not 
like I know you describe yourself as an illustrator and a cartoonist, and I respect that enormously, but you're a true artist. You're a beautiful artist. And that will only grow bigger and bigger as your work continues. Your greatest gift is distillation. You're distilling all of this information, all of this information, and you're putting it into one, one cartoon. You might have like one speech bubble or maybe two if you're being, you know, really indulgent. Yeah. And you explain the whole geopolitical situation in a manner that almost anybody, even my chocolate Labrador sometimes I think understands your pictures. Maybe not quite that far. He's not that smart, but I love him and he gets it, you know? We can see it in one picture and that's what you do. That's what's special about you, isn't that? I think, yeah, that's always the challenge of how do you do that? And obviously the you know, the most satisfying ones for me are when there's no words at all, when you can just get it in an image, you can get the point across in an image. Can't always do that. But for a while, I was sort of describing myself as a counter-propagandist, you know, but I don't really like that anymore because it's not, it's the, it's uh, what I'm trying to do is the opposite of propaganda, you know, and it's sort of like, Telling how, the do truth. I, how do I whittle this down to what the truth actually is? And that's the power of art. That's sort of the unique power of art really is even going deeper than what you can actually see and experience with your own eyes. It's what's it making you feel? What's the story behind that? What's actually right beneath the layers of simply the observable? So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. I think it's one of the great things about having young children, actually, is that so my and homeschooling, because they're always here, and I'm up here working, so my seven-year-old son will often pop up and say, what are you drawing, Daddy? And he'll ask me to explain it to him. And if I can explain it to him and he gets it, I know I'm probably doing okay because I've whittled it down enough, you know? Yeah, I'm not saying I aim my stuff at seven-year-olds, but let's face it, <laughs> a lot of the people who need waking up are, you know, below that level. So, Well, The Sun, the biggest selling newspaper still to this day, unbelievably in the United Kingdom, has a reading age of about nine years old, I think last time studies were done, so I might be a little bit out of date. But if the vast majority of people are reading a daily rag aimed at the literacy level of a nine-year-old, then you're pretty much spot on. If your seven-year-old's going, yes, dad, I understand your cartoons, then yeah, we're hitting the mark. And well, there you go. So my chocolate Labrador's basically getting it. Yes, yes, my Labrador's almost on the same page as the sun readers. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing it. You're really communicating something. And it, it's just been, it's been beautiful. Why? And I, I asked this, Totally sincerely, because I, I genuinely do not read the fake news media. I do not. We don't have a television. I know a lot of people say that, but we actually don't. So what happened with the Telegraph? Like, why did they get rid of probably the greatest cartoonist they've ever had and ever will have? Like, what happened? What were they thinking? It was, I suppose, complicated and not complicated at the same time. It didn't come as a total shock to me because there had been increasingly there had been controversy behind the scenes and friction. I became very vocal on Twitter, which I never had been before all this started. I was on there, I had about 5,000 followers, and all I'd do is put out my cartoons and nothing else, you know. And when this started, you know, once I reached that point where I was like, hang on a minute, where, where's everyone else? No one else is saying this stuff, you know, no one else is joining this fight and pointing these things out. So I thought I need to supplement things. I need to start tweeting as well, making threads. And sometimes I'd illustrate them with my cartoons and things like that. And I began to get colleagues sort of arguing with me on Twitter when I say these things like people shouldn't follow the rules or we should have the schools open is another example. You know, we should put children first. We're putting lives in danger. Where's your evidence for this? Where's your, you know, the classic 
some citation. Have you got citation for that? Have I got citation <laughs> for, for the fact that abusing children is wrong? I mean, why are you asking? Anyway, usually what I do is email them privately on the work email and begin by saying, hey, we work for the same organization. Let's not fight on a public platform. And I would try and send them some, you know, some evidence to the points I was making and sort of urge them to investigate this stuff. And a lot of them, I think, got very stroppy. And I know they, they went to the chief executives and demanded that I should be fired. This is sort of towards the end of 2020. But uh, sorry to interject, yeah. how disgustingly professional you are. How disgustingly professional you are. How many other people, when being attacked by colleagues at work, and I'm sorry, I'm shooting from the hip here, but if I was attacked by colleagues at work on social media, I would shoot them the hell down right there in public on social media, and I don't give one. Like, I, I know that's perhaps not the best. That's probably, that's like the woman in me, I think, rather than the man. Yeah, I get it. But do you know what? Like, what a what an extremely professional thing to do, to have a little private conversation, say, hey, hang on a minute, we work for the same organisation, let's just... Like, what a, a dream employee. What a true hero and true professional you are. That's amazing. Like, I, I can't think of somebody else who would have put up with that and done that, particularly given, you know, how prominent you were anyway with your cartoons in Telegraph before any of this nonsense. Power to you. Massive respect. Maybe naively, I thought if I tried to approach them in a friendly, professional way, maybe I could sway them. Maybe I could change their mind. I get them to do some actual investigative journalism, which they weren't doing. I won't go into it too much, but I, you know, some of them would literally say to me things like, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a point where all the hospitals were supposedly full of children with COVID. And this was all yes, over sir, the media. There were newspaper reports of nurses saying our ICU is full of children. And I said on Twitter, I said, you know, this isn't happening. And this is really concerning because we're supposedly doing all of this and destroying everything that gives life meaning for the health service. And the health service is lying to the public about what's going on. And this guy, this journalist at work, you know, says, right, that's a pretty serious allegation. I assume you have some evidence for that. So anyway, I'd emailed him the evidence and explained, well, look, this." he then came back and said, well, yeah, of course I know, because we were going to run a story about that. But I actually went to the hospital in question and checked with the doctor who told me it wasn't true. So we pulled the story and I said, no, no, you don't pull the story. You write a new story confirming that, yes, these nurses and other health professionals are lying. What's going on here? It was just like they all forgot what journalism was supposed to be. It was extraordinary. Anyway, this little group of them, I think, were really put out after being told, as I understand from the people at the top, look, we're not going to fire him, leave him alone. You know, we're fine with what he's doing. And they then, I think, I don't have evidence for this, but I'm pretty sure they then went to places like Private Eye and some other left-wing publications or pro-lockdown people and got some fairly nasty smear pieces written about me. And saying how everyone at the paper wanted me out and uh, and all this uh, quite nasty stuff about my family as well, which you know totally unfounded. So anyway, that that made me think. On the one hand, this is getting a bit dodgy. I feel like there are some knives out for me here, and also made me think: Is this the right place for me to stay? You know, do I want to keep working here till I'm like eighty-five and I drop off my chair? I'm not sure. 
But I thought, oh, maybe it'll get better. And I became increasingly active on Twitter and more outspoken and more angry, particularly where children were concerned. We were going through, towards the end of 2021, we were going through a particularly difficult time with our daughter, both with her health problems and what was going on with school. And it was getting really difficult. And there is a doctor, though there are lots of doctors, obviously, on social media who really push for more lockdowns, more restrictions, telling teenagers to get vaccinated without telling their parents, that kind of thing. And you see these tweets and you type an aggressive reply and then you stop yourself and you put your phone down and you go for a walk. But on this occasion, it was particularly, I was feeling particularly upset and angry about everything. And I saw this tweet from a doctor called Rachel Clark, who was complaining about how she'd suffered verbal abuse on the underground for having a mask on. And she's somebody who has had constantly called for restrictions that, you know, came close to killing my child. That's not an exaggeration. And so I just thought, I'm not having this. I'm not having you people push this stuff anymore. And I'm certainly not going to have you come onto social media and whinge about the fact that the public whose lives you've ripped apart maybe say some mean words to you. I mean, what the hell do you expect after what you've done? I shared a tweet and I said she deserved verbal abuse because of what she'd done. And I happen to agree with you wholeheartedly. I'll just dive in and say it because I do agree with you. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this, did this doctor, uh, have like her own mask line. Was she selling masks or was that not the same doctor? Oh, no, it's not that one. No, no. no. She was just pro. She was just pro it. I think it's some of the mask one. Uh, Yeah, but it's similar. You're in the right. Yeah, no, I've seen this. I've seen this. I knew who this person vaguely was. Uh, An absolute uh, staunch, what I would call a branch covidian, not your words, mine. Someone who's totally in the cult, totally pushing it, ruining people's lives. And because she's a doctor, sort of hiding behind this title that oh, well, this is what we think, this is the science and all of the rest of it. Well, okay, if you're going to do that, you have to accept the consequences that come with that lady. I'm sorry, but that's how life works. And I have to say, like, I'm totally biased, but I don't disagree with a single word you wrote with regard to Dr. Rachel I mean, the thing is, if she had written that somebody had physically attacked her, I would never have, I would definitely not have said, yeah, you deserve that. But I mean, we're talking about verbal abuse which could have just been someone saying, take that stupid mask off. I mean... Hurty, hurty words. Hurty, hurty words. That's what we're talking about, let's face it. And then, of course, this pylon starts from all the other doctors and lots of big blue tick accounts and celebrities and actors and and different people, politicians, colleagues, other journalists, (laughs) absolutely condemning this. There are two meanings to the word actor, aren't there, Bob? (laughs) Actors and actors, right? You had them all, I saw. You had all of them. Calling for me to be fired, you know. And so anyway, I was suspended pending investigation and then had letters from her solicitor threatening to sue me. (laughs) For what? Hurty, hurty words. (laughs) Everything. Sorry. Yeah, for... I think for... um, The second... Because I said a secretary actually saying, well, you know... It was something like encouraging. I think she had said that I'm inciting harm. I was inciting harm with what I wrote. 
And I think well, like, take you know, the mask I, off and breathe fresh air. Helpful. Yeah, that's really harmful. Almost isn't it? everything she tweeted for two years was inciting harm. You know, lockdown is harm. Well said. Anyway, sir. yeah. This was well um, defamation, apparently. So I thought, okay, let's go to court and prove that lockdown hasn't caused any harm. You know, great. Good for you. Obviously, I didn't write that back to her solicitors. It was scary. I'm not going to lie. It was quite a frightening situation. You know, you're suddenly probably going to lose your job. You've got a wife and three children to support, mortgage to pay, all this stuff going on with a child with health problems and school problems. We were having building done on the house at the time as well to adapt it, to make it easier for our daughter. And I came close to sort of losing it, basically, at that time. And then I had to go for this, what do they call it, a disciplinary uh, hearing with work, where it you was just... You strike me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you strike me as the sort of person who was probably never even in trouble once at school, let alone the disciplinary at work. You strike me as probably a pretty really. good student. Pretty... Have you got experience of this, or is this like a, a new... Uh... Well, it did feel like being called to the headmaster at school. It was very much like that, mm-hmm. which it only happened a few times. I was a bit rebellious at school. You know, obviously, I have a bit of a rebellious streak. <laughs> you know, I'm always, I've always been slightly against authority. And I mainly got in trouble for drawing at school and, you know, doodling in, in my books at the back of class, <laughs> which, I, you know, I may wish they kept them. I don't know, actually, probably not. But anyway... I bet yeah, some of them did. Just... I bet they stick them on their bathroom walls. <laughs> well, by the end of school, I was getting teachers come up to me and sort of awkwardly saying, you've never actually drawn a cartoon of me. Could you do one before you leave? They were smart. They knew. Um, they, they saw what they had there. Good for them. <laughs> they were the smart ones. <laughs> the stupid ones told you off and got you in trouble. The smart ones said, can you do me? Can you draw me? Uh, could I yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Um, you carry on about it was a serious point you're making. Oh yes, yeah, so this hearing, <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was really unpleasant. And I kind of knew by that point it was sort of a foregone conclusion that they were going to probably fire me. I sort of figured out if I said the right things, I probably could keep my job, which would involve, you know, apologising. And the key thing was, I needed to admit that I brought the company's reputation into disrepute. That was the key point, which I refused to do because I said, look, here are some of the things you've published over the past couple of years, calling for lockdowns, calling for schools to be closed, pro-mask, you know, pieces sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, all of this stuff. And I said, in the eyes of history, your reputation is already damaged way, but you know, nothing I can tweet will damage it anymore than all of this stuff. So, and I also said, you know, what I wrote was not in my capacity as a cartoonist or a journalist or an employee of this company. It was as a father defending his child against somebody who was advocating for policies that threatened her life, which you're well aware of because I've done loads of work for you, won a ton of awards, you've made loads of money from me agreeing to let you publish work about this. And they said, it's not relevant. We don't care. It's not relevant to this situation at all. So, I mean, I, I almost got up and walked out at that point. But yeah, anyway, they ended up firing me. So I was suddenly in this situation where a job I thought I would probably have till I was in my 80s 
was gone and wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. Those goons. Right, yeah. The injustice thing gets me really going. I have a big problem with injustice. And if anything, your conduct and your contribution via Twitter and via your cartoons, be they on the Telegraph, be they privately produced now, particularly with regard to the Telegraph, if they had any defence, any possible defence in the future for their conduct during what I call, my words, the pandemic, mm. that would be you. That would be only you. Because from what I can see, you're one of the only people who was actually even bothering to canvas for the other side of the argument. You were the only person offering any kind of alternative opinion in that wretched paper during the whole thing. They've pinned everything to one tiny, narrow view of what allegedly took place. And you are the only other guy that makes them vaguely, vaguely defensible. If, if I'm a defense lawyer, like I'm, I'm thinking, right, get me all of Bob's work now, because this <laughs> is the only thing I can do in the future to defend that, that paper. Well, I'm serious. That, there's very little. I mean, they're coming out now in dribs and drabs with these pithy little pathetic articles that I could have written two years ago. They've got, they're, they're releasing information now that we all knew the crazy conspiracy theorists we all knew two years ago. And we were telling them, we're like, oi. And we were the ones writing comments on their tweets or on their, you know, online newspaper articles saying, oi, hang on a minute, have you read this? Do you know about Dr. That? Well, what about this? Yeah. They weren't interested then. It's not like they didn't know. You are the only thing that's remotely defensible about well, their behavior over the past two years. It's such a good point, Sarah. It's not that they ignored us even. It's worse than that. We know they didn't ignore us because they attacked us for saying it. You know, when we were screaming about the damages this would cause to children, physically, psychologically, academically, they responded to all of us calling us nuts, asking, where's your evidence? Your right-wing conspiracy theorists, your granny killers, your completely insane, freedom lovers, whatever. And now they're desperately trying to make out that nobody had any idea or that somehow they didn't, they weren't aware of our movement or our concerns. The Telegraph this week published an article basically saying exactly that point of no. <laughs> there were, I saw this a couple of days ago, saying, um, no, no, there were brave people speaking out. And it is completely ridiculous to pretend you know, that they were, that we didn't know. And the thing is, those people were smeared and attacked. And they didn't actually say that those people were fired. They conveniently left that bit out. I just think... Well, like, sorry, you, sorry, sorry. What, I'm railroading here, but what, like the most gifted cartoonist they've ever had in the history of their damn rotten stinking rag? Are we talking about the same thing here? Yeah, yeah, well, you can't say that, but I can. What an absolute... And it's too little too late, and everyone can see what they're doing. They're rats fleeing a stinking, stink, sinking, stinking ship. And I'm not having it, and, and, and nor yeah. anybody of my ilk. It's disgusting. The very notion of... Um, Where's your evidence that masking children's going to cause harm? Are you kidding me? What, you need to be a speech therapist to realize that lip reading matters? They say that something like 80 to 95% of all communication is nonverbal. What is wrong with you? You don't need a speech and language special education on these degrees to realize that there might be some problems coming further down the line if we muzzle adults and children. Children are trying to read the facial expressions and the lips of adults. I live in a foreign country. My French isn't very good. I work very hard at it and I'm still not very good. I can't understand most of the time. You stick a, a muzzle on, I'm stuffed. I'm done. You really learn as a foreigner 
just how much you rely on lip reading. If you've ever doubted it, go to a foreign country and check it out. Check them out with the muzzles, you're done. There's nothing, you've lost way over half of the information, even within the context of, oh, I'm in a shop or I'm in a, I'm in a bakery, I'm in a restaurant. Even within that, with this barrier, this physical barrier. So you don't need to be a speech and language freaking PhD to realize that this is going to harm children. And we told them, where's your evidence? What are you talking about? And that was where your beautiful painting Amnesty comes in that uh, is very recent last week or so. My husband and I, one of our absolute favorites. Can you just uh, flesh that out for people who might not have seen it? I I post it on all my channels, of course, but just tell us uh, what that was. And hopefully people understand why I've raised that. It was, yes, it, that was just the perfect response. People might not know, but there was a, a piece published last week in the Atlantic, an American journal that's been really aggressively pro all of the nonsense, written by a lady professor. I can't actually remember her name. Probably best Emily. Um, Emily something. I'll Google it while you're doing it. Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, we talked about this the other day. Go ahead. Yeah. And it's, you know, calling for a pandemic amnesty and essentially saying there were so many things we didn't realize at the beginning and we should stop arguing now and just say that, you know, it's nobody's fault, essentially, and move on. And this understandably sparked uh, fury from all the people like us, you know, who'd spent two years screaming all of this at them. And so, yeah, I was thinking, what cartoon could I do? And for a while, I'd wanted to do something on the Salem Witch Trials, because obviously there's so many parallels with what's gone on. And I thought, oh, this is maybe a perfect issue to use. So I had two panels, and and the first one is two ladies tied to a stake, you know, and the fire is starting to burn. And there's uh, two witch finders and one of them's holding the torch so he's just lit the fire and the other one is saying to the guy with the torch it turns out that they weren't actually witches after all and then in the second panel the flames have come right up and they're completely consumed in the flames and the guy's thrown the torch on the ground and he's shouting into the flames uh, mistakes were made on both sides which i thought was you know it's kind of not really it was one of the the absurdity It's one of the most satisfying things from our side of the view of the whole thing in the last two and a half years. I have to say that was just a moment of sheer and utter unbridled relief. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, that's what I love about the work is that when I'm, you know, when I'm able to give people like a, you know, a rebuttal, a quick and super effective rebuttal that they can just post under any, anybody you know, calling for amnesty or whatever, that's really satisfying. I think that's one of the things that gives my work value is these little grenades, these little um, visual grenades people can lob at the other side. Distilled and concentrated and beautifully observed. The Atlantic article we're referencing, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Oh, she's missed the L out of pandemic, silly girl. Let's declare, <laughs> let's declare a pandemic amnesty, I think she meant, by Emily Oster. Well, Miss Emily Oster, I'm very sorry, but we're not having it. And shame on you. Shame on you. I was talking the other day with Darren of Plymouth about the exact same article, and we were disgusted how um, that's not how real men behave. 
if real men are found to have done something wrong, you're supposed to accept responsibility and there's a punishment and there is a reparation. And that's how we're supposed to behave with dignity. Yes, you may have done something wrong. You accept the punishment. You deal with that. You make the reparations. You deal with that. And then you start again. That's how real society works. And this, I said, it's a girly. It's pathetic. It's, oh, nobody meant it. Nobody meant no harm. Let's all be Miss Honey. And Darren said, well, yeah, it's a woman that wrote it. I said, well, regardless of that, and it was, he's completely right. Regardless of that, this is such a girly attitude and it's not acceptable. It is not acceptable in a grown-up society. We have to be real men and you know, real women are supposed to support real men. And this is a disgusting attitude. Oh, let's forget. No, I'm sorry. Those witches were burned. Mistakes were made on both sides. Are you kidding me? And for those of you who are uh, wanting a bit of extra homework, because my people are wonderful, wonderful students, Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, Arthur Miller's masterpiece, The Crucible, is uh, very much relevant to this work, Bob's work on uh, quote-unquote amnesty and everything that's happened really over the last two and a half years. The Crucible is a great example set in the late 1600s regarding the Salem witch trials. I highly recommend it. It's not a very long play. Obviously, it's better if you can get to watch it, but don't suffer any disgusting rules to have to go and watch it. Just get a copy of it and read it if you must. In but fact, that's exactly all, where all you should Arthur go Miller, for extra work. Re- have a go at all Arthur Miller. It's great. You know, any Arthur Miller. All My Sons, Death of a Salesman, it's all just fantastic. And I think probably all of it has some relevance to what's going on now. Well, that's what you do. You're the Arthur Miller of, you're the Arthur Miller of the cartoon world. You can't say that, but I can. And and you're very, very modest. No, I'm going to have my moment. I'm going to say it. I'm a huge Arthur Miller fan. We talked about this slightly off air. My dreams were to be a British playwright and my greatest influence is Arthur Miller because every single play he writes is about a universal theme of humanity, something that is very important. It has a message and it has a moral message to humanity or a warning of some kind. Every single play he's written, and you mentioned there, All My Sons, it's a lesser known. Now, a lot of people have seen or read that one. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, tragic. Yeah. Um, there's Death of a Salesman, of course, which is very famous, A View from the Bridge and The Crucible and many, many more. None of his work is chewing gum. None of it's superfluous. All of it really means something. And he's a wonderful, wonderful master playwright. But that's exactly what you're doing with your work. Your art is in a different format. It's cartoons, it's illustrations. To me, it's beautiful art, it's paintings. You're the only artist my husband and I have ever agreed on as a genuine artist. We agree on everything except two things. Number one, Clint Eastwood. He loves him. I say he can't act. And he can't. I should know. I've been to drama school. Terrible. So we argue about Clint Eastwood all the time. He makes me watch them. I want to poke my eyes out. And we argue about art. We don't have a single piece of proper art in our house. And it's because we just can't agree. We love art, but we argue about what's the best. Do you know what? You've just solved it. You're the only artist we agree on. We agree on all of your pieces of art. So you know, we've got a future. We can actually furnish our home now with an artist we both agree on. So thank you. You've solved one of the two arguments. How I'm going to solve Clint Eastwood, I'll never know. But please God, he's made his last movie for all of our sakes. But at least we solved this. And what you're doing, in all seriousness, I joke about a little bit. My husband and I have, do have this serious argument about art, but and we do definitely agree on you. But in all seriousness, you're the Arthur Miller of your industry. All of your work, and I'm talking about the last two and a half years in particular, all of it means something. All of it is absolutely on the money and nothing is wasted. You don't waste a single brushstroke. You said earlier, like trying to paint something without a caption, with no words at all, Mm. or the absolute minimum words. It's just, they are masterpieces. And I know you can't say that, but I genuinely mean that. And I'm not just spouting. I have so many parents contacting me all the time in tears because of the things that you've painted. 
you know, elated about the things that you're making them feel good. What you're doing is beautiful, Bob, and you're a true beautiful artist. And thank you very much indeed for everything you've done for all of these people. We're really, really grateful. And I know that must be heavy. And you, how it's can heavy. I sit here and compare you to Arthur Miller? Well, I'm sorry I just did, because that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Thank you, Sarah. And obviously, a lot of my work is concerned with the delusion in the same Arthur Miller's. That's another common theme of his work is people being deluded and misled by ideas imposed on them. And so a lot of it can be quite dark. It can be quite gloomy. And, you know, look at the state we're in, look at what we're doing. I try occasionally, I sort of think I've got it. I need to do something optimistic. I need to do something about the truth and the light and the love, the alternative. And, you know, one of the basic things that's happened is people have been made to forget fundamental moral truths. And sometimes I'm just, I just think, let's try and remind them of what those are. Because suddenly it's become incredibly controversial to point them out, dangerous. So that, you know, the, the one I did early on of the couple on the hill that says, never surrender your right to be with the people you love. I was going to say that. I was just going to ask you about the old couple. Yeah, yeah. That, that I was it just going to put in. And, more yeah. and debate than anything else. Because it was right at that point, I think it was September 2020, you could say at the height of the kind of lockdown mania and people on the other side just hated it. They thought it was the most disgusting, irresponsible message. Being humans, a disgusting, irresponsible message. When, how, yeah. in what circumstances? Yeah. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. The other one was Mama. I think it was Mama with the big bear rescuing the baby bear from the cage. That's come more recently. But that's another one yeah. of those moments that really punches you in the solar plexus, really hits you. I've had a lot of people hit very hard by that. Huge amounts of emotion because you just nailed it again. You just nailed it. They don't want your family to be important. They want the state to be important, not your family. And you just smashed it again. And oh, I had like a huge wave of emotion over that one. It's parents, isn't it? They want these sort of neutered parents who forget their role and who just aren't lacking the courage and conviction to stand up for their children or even think about whether their children are being harmed or in danger. And so much of my work is about, you know, trying to say, for God's sake, parents, like, remember your role. You know, remember the state is not taking care of them. None of these institutions are there to take care of them. It's just you. You have to put yourself in the way. There was a big thing with our school, you know, I just couldn't get through to them. Uh, in the end, I got really quite cross and, and just said, you know, I, I may have sworn and said, put the children first, please put the children first. Stop letting your adult neuroses and weird beliefs, absurd beliefs, put these children second and do things that are actively harming them, you know, and that's when they banned my wife and I from entering the premises. So... It's game over. Well done, you. Well, respect to you because you did your job and you're telling the truth. One of the things I, I'm not sure I can ever reconcile it if I'm perfectly honest, and I'm not proud of that, the fact that I can't, I, you know, my forgiveness gene isn't clearly not developed enough because any of my so-called colleagues that went along with any of this stuff, masking children, making children distance, making children obsessively wash their hands and frightening children, scaring the children, like when did we ever do that as teaching staff? If something bad happens, if, if, yeah. if there's a 
there's a bad guy outside school picking up children in his Cadillac, as happened at one of my schools a long time ago when I was a student, not a teacher. The one thing the teachers do is keep it from the children and make sure the children are calm, the children are safe, and they feel protected and secure, and hopefully don't even know there's anything going on. Because it's not a child's problem. That is an adult's problem. That is something for the adults to deal with. The children should have a childhood and play and feel safe. That's the deal. We take on the responsibility of protecting them and not just physically protecting them, psychologically protecting them. That's our bloody job. And the minute they're starting doing this masking and you've got teachers admitting to children, especially young children, that they're frightened. You don't show fear. What are you doing? I don't care if you're afraid. If you're a soldier in the trenches, if you're a, um, a lieutenant, a minor officer, you don't show fear. You've got to lead those men. You have a job to do. It's a complete disgrace that these so-called adults superimpose their fear onto these young children, ditch their fear. They completely dropped their responsibility. They dropped their whole vocation. They dropped their profession in a single day. In a single day, they completely yeah. ceased to be leaders, role models, and teachers. And I I have to stop or I'm going to swear to Bob. I'm sorry. You go. (laughs) They not only drop their responsibility, they put the responsibility on the shoulders of the children. That was another one of the disgusting things. It's not just that they didn't shelter these children from the fear, like in your example of the dodgy guy outside the gates. You know, it's the equivalent of going in, not only telling them that this man is there, but saying, also, it's your fault that he's there. It's because of you. You know, my son, my, my seven-year-old son came home one day from school and obviously he was aware of the nonsense because we'd sort of had to make it clear to him that, you know, all of this stuff is not necessary. There's nothing to worry about. He came home one day and said, oh, daddy, um, they told us today that we all have to be superheroes at school. And I immediately thought, oh dear, I, I bet I know what this is about. I said, well, what, what, you know, what do you mean? He said, we have to be superheroes to save adults from getting viruses. So that's why we have to wash our hands and wear masks and not sit near our friends and get vaccinated. And I said, you know, obviously I explained to him, no, you don't. That's wrong. And then I wrote an email and said, what the hell are you doing putting this idea in children's heads? Why do you think it's a good idea to put that burden on a child? Do you have any idea the level of guilt they are going to end up feeling? The kind of psychological damage this is going to cause if you say to them, it's their fault if adults get some kind of respiratory illness. When in the whole history of humanity have we ever thought that was a good idea? You know, even if it's true, it. even if it's true, yeah, we do not exactly. dump this stuff on the children. Even it's our it's responsibility. True, yeah, even if it's true, we're the don't grown ups. It's our responsibility. You know, people would reply to some of my cartoons and things, say, "Well." How's the child going to feel at his grandmother's funeral knowing that he killed his grandmother? And I would say, why the hell would you tell a child that? But like you were saying, you know, it's It's astonishing that all it took was three or four weeks of fear propaganda to make people start doing these morally disgusting things to their own children or teachers to the children in their class. That's all it took. And you kind of realize at a certain point, Goodness, we were in an incredibly fragile place before this started. We must have been, actually, as it turns out. These teachers could not have been very far away from doing these things if all it took was a few weeks, you know, of propaganda. It wasn't long enough, was it? This has been going on for decades behind the scenes. This was prepared. This was carefully positioned because you can't do that much 
brainwashing in four weeks of social media and uh, fake news media, newspaper, all that. So you can't, you just can't. It, It takes a much, much longer than that. And I've been on the inside of teachers and teacher training for way beyond that. And I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it. This Marxist, communist, awful, disgusting, tyrannical behavior. They're no longer teaching uh, what in loco parentis truly means in teacher training schools, in colleges, universities. There was no training given really properly for pastoral care, only to find disabilities and find, oh, there's a special educational need here, even when there wasn't, because the school gets more money. There was no actual, real, genuine care for the human beings and treating people on the individual merits that they present with. Everyone's different. Everyone has special educational needs, actually. We're all different. So we all need very different stuff. I was much more open to sports and outdoors and physical stuff. Other children are more cerebral and internalized. And the whole thing, the whole thing has been manipulated. And it's been manipulated over a very, very long period of time because the speed is just too quick, Bob. There's no there's no way they managed to do that coup in four weeks. There's just no way. Mm. It was already there. And I think back at, across my teaching career, and I can't think of a single teacher that would have even admitted to have reading the Telegraph. Like I used to hide it because I read the sports pages. Because <laughs> I, I, I was hiding it not because it's the Telegraph, because it's a right of center paper. I was hiding it because I didn't want anyone to think I read newspapers at all. Because I was... Thanks yeah. to my husband, who's been awake for about 30-odd years, bless him. I think my husband might have been that bloke that David Icke was talking about. You know, that other guy in the telephone box when he couldn't tell anybody and no one was interested. I think my husband might have been that one other guy that might have been interested. Yeah. But anyway, whether he was or whether he wasn't, my husband's been on at me for years. And he was dead right. And it's quite embarrassing, especially as the woman who obviously knows everything and is always right. Lol. So yeah, it's been really a bit of a, a, a steep learning curve for me because everything he's ever said has basically come true. And luckily, I did actually have the humility to listen to my husband quite some time ago. But even so, like it's it's unbelievable the, the damage that has been done by the lies and the cheating. And the, you couldn't take a copy of the Telegraph into a staff room. Mm. But then even at a school in the south of England, like... You wouldn't dare. You take. You might take in a guardian, and if you're really edgy, the independent, which is, if you're calling yourself the independent, well, <laughs> you've obviously got issues, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> why would you call the? How can you call yourself independent? Who's independent, really, about anything? Anyway, but I would never have dreamed of taking in the Telegraph, and I did use to hide the sports pages amongst something, you know, sort of papers because I love my cricket and I had to read about the cricket. But no, it's a serious thing, and and, and whilst I joke about it, it's not funny. That is not funny. Okay. What do you mean you can't take a copy of the Telegraph? or a right of centre newspaper. It's not even a, a, it's just marginally right of, I'd call it centrist anyway, especially these days. If that, yeah. you can't take that into a staff room. You feel under some kind of pressure to not take that into a secondary school staff room on your break. Like, what is that? I've never, literally in my whole career, and I've taught in the North, I've taught in the South, I've taught in faith schools, I've taught in state schools. I've worked with students from grammar schools and private schools, but in terms of being inside behaviour schools, faith schools, special educational needs schools, you don't take a telegraph anywhere. And that was then, let alone what's happened 10, 15 years later. This has been going on a very, very long time. Who on earth thinks that that's a good idea to have children taught by people who think in exactly the same way, with exactly the same worldviews, exactly the same politics? It's a recipe Communists. for disaster. Yeah, I mean, yeah. At one word, it's communists. It's extreme socialists. Yeah. I guess it's technocracy is what we're dealing with really here, which is actually a little bit different. It's sort of related to fascism, communism, socialism, but with added bits that are even worse. Yeah. 
It's essentially, I think what it comes down to, as I understand it, is viewing human beings as machines and nothing more. Programmable computers, not even computers, literally just automatons that you can plug things into and program them. It's trying to reach a point where the soul is gone, essentially. There's no human soul anymore. It's really dark. A lot of people misunderstand what it means, I think. They, they think it's just, it refers to a kind of society governed by technology. It's a lot darker than that. If you look at the true origins of the movement, yeah, it's bad. But, you know, with the, the current schools, high priest of that yeah. is an evil, what I, who I call evil Noah Harari. I think it's called Uvel. Yes. No, it sounds like evil to me. Evil Noah Harari is their latest... Uh, propagandist, their latest philosopher. He was Barack Obama's right-hand man, Barack Hussein Obama, the Nobel Peace of Crap Prize winner, remember folks. He, he was nominated for that award either 12 or, it was 12 days after he gained office. So he was such a good president, within 12 days he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, isn't that a, isn't that a thing? And this, right, and his, his right-hand man, sorry, throw it again. Barack Drone Bomber is what we call him beautiful. Oh, it's even better than mine. I'm stealing it. Stolen. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And his right-hand man, his guru, his guru, his philosopher was evil. And I've said that deliberately wrong. Evil Noah Harari. Go look up. If you want to know about technocracy, and like Bob says, this is not some just, you know, a bit of tech, a bit of, you know, futurism. This is really dangerous. This is dark. This is dangerous. Anti. I would go as far as to say it's anti-human. And in my opinion, the stronger that drum beats, the more powerful your work becomes because everything about your work is so humane. The one you talked about earlier with the old couple sat hugging each other, looking out at the sunset. One of my favorites is that Voldemort evil beast creature with this syringe and you've got this mother, you know, protecting the child behind. It's so, everything you do is so human and it's so visceral and the stronger they get and, and the more above the parapet they put themselves and their disgusting ideas, the more dangerous to them you become. Your potency as a defensive weapon is off the charts at this point because you're so, what, what, everything you do is so human. It's so from the heart and you can't stop that. That resonates, that literally vibrates. And this is, I think, this is the real secret to your art and your mastery at the moment is you've distilled the information And because you're telling the truth and it's from a point of humanity and from the heart, it's touching everybody. I work with people in the United States regularly who help me and improve me and make me a better teacher and stuff. And they know you, they they know your work. And it's because you're making people feel things on the other side of the planet. And that's that universalism, that universal truth that I was talking about with Arthur Miller. That's what you're doing, isn't it? That's why you're so dangerous to them. I mean, I hope so. I don't know what impact it has on them, whoever they, you know, use this term, they, the Yuval Noah Hararis of this world and Klaus Schwab and, and all the rest of them. But, but certainly, you know, my view is that these people are attacking us in every way imaginable other than conventional warfare, essentially. But we are being attacked in our very essence as human beings. But the genius of their strategy is that most of the people they're attacking have no idea that they are being attacked. and the way they've launched this war is to essentially convince the majority of the human population who are their enemies to destroy themselves. And so before we can even begin to contemplate getting rid of these people, doing something about them, we need ordinary people to understand the attack that's been launched on them. And so that's kind of 
the main motivation behind most of what I'm doing is just trying to make people aware of what's actually at stake and the fact that we're in a war. You know, it's not a conventional war, but we are under attack. And so I don't know if they look at my cartoons and have second thoughts or, you know, the people doing all of this, if they get worried or if they're even aware of it. it I don't mind that. It's the people. I'm drawing for the people and trying to wake them up. That's all it is. And, you know, the other thing is it's very hard to argue with a cartoon. It's very difficult. It just, it's not the same as a tweet or an article. Something about the art that when people start arguing with it, you just look like a bit of an idiot, you know, which is... You're holding the mirror up to nature. That's why you're doing it in a more effective manner. Shakespeare talks about holding the mirror up to nature, and he does, but it's very flowery and arty-farty. But you don't have those problems these days because you can make a drawing and then you can paint it and you can send it out to the world in like a you know, few hours if you've nailed your reason and, you know, what you're going to do. You just have that capacity to reach more people. You don't have to have all this flowery language and all this stuff that could be misinterpreted. It's very, very hard to misinterpret a painting when it's just yeah. so blatantly laid out, you've distilled it. It's not, I'm not saying that, oh, you just make a painting and anyone can see. No, no, your unique gift and you are very talented. This is your thing. You distill so much information into just the most simple human essence. You grab it, you grasp it, you're incisive, you're shrewd, you're exacting and you don't mess about with it. You grab it and you don't let go. And people can see that straight away. And you're right. There's like People can argue about this word or that word and, and, and deliberately misinterpret language. It's very hard to mess up with a painting. And yeah, they're really suffering from it. And I don't care about that. I'm with you. I, I don't care about the powers that shouldn't be and whether they're scared or not. I admire the fact that you're waking up people who perhaps otherwise wouldn't get it. For me, I'm just working with the people who are already awake and trying to help them remove their children from the state indoctrination centres. They're also known as schools, but they're state indoctrination centres, make no mistake. And I'm so grateful that my job is to get to work with these people and to help these people because these are the best people and they're the ones they they rave about. And I'm not just saying it because you're here, like these people rave about your work and rightly so. It's beautiful. And I really do mean it. I've had parents in tears and all sorts talking to me about your latest creation. I have to keep on top of everything you paint and everything you tweet, actually, because otherwise, I, you know, my parents are telling me things I don't know about. So I'm, I'm all over your work, especially at this moment in time. May I just ask, I'm, I'm sort of regressing here a little bit, but I yeah. just want to know a little bit about your educational background. And in particular, yeah. so there's two things here. One, like, how was your education? And then how have you become you, basically? And number two is, what do we do about young people who have a flair for art, cartoons, illustrations, but are terrified of not being able to do GCSE art because they can't get supervision because they don't go to school, they're home educated? Like, is that going to stop them being a great artist? Is there anything you can say? So there's two things there. A, how did you become how you are? And B, how can we reassure these young people who are a talented and budding artist and perhaps inspired by your, your own work? How can we reassure them that you don't need a state qualification in order to be all that, that you can be? Okay. So, the, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I, you don't need those things. I'll just start by saying that and then I'll come back to it. I come from a fairly ordinary family. My dad was the first person from his family to go to university. And basically, because he was able to go to university, he was told he had to either be a doctor or, or a lawyer. He was given no other options. My dad's also quite creative. I think he would have done something artistic if he'd been given the opportunity. But it was in the days when it was like, no, you've got to do one of these two things. So he did law and 
worked as a solicitor, a property solicitor, and always hated it, always hated it. And so he had uh, me and my two brothers and said to us, both my parents said to us, really instilled in us from an early age, you find what you love and what you're good at and you pursue it and we'll support you. Not going to push you in any direction, which at the time you think most parents must say this to their children and then you get older and realize, actually, no, we don't. Like lots of parents don't do that. So I'm so grateful. And, you know, we've all ended up doing weird and wonderful jobs that, you know, not particularly conventional and quite hard to achieve success in. I went to an ordinary state primary school and then I was meant to pass my 11 plus and go to the local grammar school, but my maths wasn't good enough. So I, I didn't get in. And there was a bit of a panic, I think, because my mum and dad didn't want to send me to the local comprehensive. So they sent me to private school without, they didn't really have enough money. So I realise now that they just made massive sacrifices to send me to private school, which is a sort of one of the, I don't know how to put it, the cheaper private schools in the country, but still a real stretch for them. And I, I loved it. You know, I had a great time there, but I'm somebody who, you know, one of these really annoying, lucky people who could just do school. I was fine, you know. I found it easy. I sort of worked out the game at an early age, you know. that This is just jumping through hoops. And I sort of would, I'd get into trouble for not doing coursework and things. But I knew I could pass the exams and I did. And, you know, I got good grades and all of that. But throughout school especially secondary school, I already knew that I wanted to be a cartoonist for a national paper. And I spend all my time drawing and it's how I made friends. It's how I got girlfriends. It's how I, um, you know, made people laugh and I would mess about drawing pictures and sometimes get detentions. And then, as I said, by the end of school, they were all asking me to do pictures for all the teachers and things. Anyway, I had an amazing art teacher called Andy Denham, who was a bit unconventional, didn't have a lot of time for the whole exam system and syllabus and stuff. And he said to me when I was about 14, do you, he brought in some books of Gerald Scarf, famous cartoonist who worked for the Sunday Times, and put them in front of me and said, I want you to take these home and look at them and think about your future and what you might like to do. And I came back the next day and I said, I want to be a political cartoonist for a newspaper. And he said, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. I said, how do I do that? And he said, I've got no idea. And nobody could tell me how to do it. Now, I think, you know, the only sort of difficulty I really had at school was that because I was good at other subjects, you know, I was very good at languages and history and English. I think there's always been a thing at private schools where basically if you're good enough, we might be good enough to go to Oxford or Cambridge. That's what you're expected to do. And so some of my teachers, were saying, well, you could go to, you could apply to Oxbridge to read English. So that's what you must do. And I was saying, no, I'm going to be a cartoonist for a newspaper. And they would just laugh at me and say, no, you're not. Nobody does that. You can't do that. There's no way of doing that. And, you know, they would sort of start saying, if you do that, it's a waste. You completely wasted your education because you won't succeed. And I remember this parents' evening where they sort of confronted my mum and dad about it. And I could tell that these teachers were expecting them to side with the, you know, with the staff. Go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's mad. We've been trying to... And my mum just said, no, 
he's going to be a cartoonist. And um, they didn't really know what to say. And so, um, yeah, I went to, after school, I went and did a foundation course for a year in art and then applied to do a degree in illustration at Falmouth University. And now looking back now, I, that wasn't completely necessary to get to where I am today. But, you know, I was in the system and it was just like, it's still going on. You have to go to university if you get A-levels. It was a very good course. It was the only one in the country I could find where they would allow political stuff. I went to lots and lots of different places and, you know, was honest and said, I want to do satirical work for newspapers. And almost all of them said, well, we won't let you do that here because it's not art or, you know, I could understand to an extent because they would, it's sort of a combination of journalism and, but there's also so a art bit that's of a be thing seen I encounter- or, or valued in your lifetime, probably. <laughs> well, there's also this thing of the fact that it's, it's actually a real job that you get paid for that a lot of art tutors don't really like, you know, you mean you actually want to make money out of your talent? That's not, no, we don't do that here. But Socialism. Uh, yeah, I, I went to, um, <laughs> yeah, I went to Falmouth and there's still, you know, even there, there still wasn't a lot of help in how do you actually get into this weird niche industry. But I learned a lot of professional skills and, you know, developed my work. And so, yeah, you know, I'll tell this story about New York because I think this is important as well. In our last year, we did a trip to New York and the weeks before we had to phone and make appointments with publishers and agents with a view to showing them our portfolios and getting feedback. It was a really cool trip. It was very exciting. And I managed to get an appointment with Rolling Stone magazine, which I was chuffed about. And so I went along to Rolling Stone offices. And as you go in to their impressive New York building, the corridor is just lined with cartoons and caricatures that they've had in the magazine. So I was thinking, okay, this is promising. And I was shown into this, you know, fancy glass office with the art editor. I can't remember her name, lady art editor. And she flicked through my portfolio that was, you know, full of cartoons. It was this was back in 2007, 2008, I think. So it was all George Bush, Hillary Clinton, Obama. And she flipped through, she didn't say anything. And then she closed it and handed it back to me. And she said, Bob, I'm going to level with you. (laughs) She said, to be a great cartoonist, you know, you've either got it or you have it. Bob, you don't have it. She said, you are not a cartoonist. And that was, (laughs) so I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, I think I probably am. But she said, oh, take it from me, Bob. You're not a cartoonist. You need to abandon this right now. So that was, you know, I don't know if she listens to your podcast, but I would I'd say, you know what? I think I probably did have it. But oh, wow, that was not what I was expecting from this story. That was not what I was expecting at all. No, but these stories, they're kind of interesting. And I think that obviously it's slightly self-indulgent to tell them. But the reason I think is important is that anyone, particularly if you're pursuing some kind of creative path, there'll be someone right now, some young person who's being told the same type of thing from some kind of talentless, overpaid idiot who has no idea what they're talking about. Is basically saying, you know who you've always known you are since the age of three? Well, you're not that person. And 
I think it's important that people understand that everyone has this. Everyone has to go through this rejection and being told you're not good enough and really having to kind of search inside yourself and know that you have got what it takes and you can't give up on this thing because it's actually part of (laughs) what makes you you. So yeah, I would just say a lot of the time, these people do not know what they're talking about. So are we saying to the young people that strength of character, talent, and hard work and practice are way more important than DCSER and then whatever some lady at Rolling Stone magazine says? Is it more about the strength of character, the talent, and the hard work putting in the practice? Are those the things that are going to make the difference for these young people? Yeah, let me just stress that that Rolling Stone incident was an exception. That was not. So all of the other meetings went very, very well. And I actually came away with my first bit of work that was for Vanity Fair magazine, which was pretty cool and very well paid before I'd even graduated. And yeah, I think, you know, yes, you will get rejections and you will get people telling you that you, you know, you're no good. But by and large, if you can get yourself in the right place, meeting with the right people, and you present them with work that's impressive, and you present yourself properly, and you put across that you're a good, interesting person to work with, then that's all you need. Nobody at any point in my career has ever asked me what I got in my GCSE art, or A-level art, or any other exam, because it's not relevant, because they're stood there looking at your work. And if they like it, And if they can see you're a sensible, decent, nice person with good values, they'll want to work with you. And I think, you know, the whole system of exams and GCSEs and and A-levels is pretty ridiculous. But especially when it comes to something like art, it really does seem stupid. And um, I didn't do, I mean, I did quite well, but only just managed to do well in GCSE and A-level art because... It's too broad. Art is too broad. And people who want to be artists and people who are talented artists have so many different reasons for doing it and types of work they want to do. And it takes such a lot of nurturing and going to different places and thinking about different things, experiencing different things that to start examining people when they're 14, 15 in that way is just a bit mad. And like I say, nobody later on in your life cares what you've got. So don't worry about GCSEs in art and A-levels in art, you know, that you, if you know that it's your thing, if you know it's what you're supposed to do, if drawing or painting or, or whatever it is, sculpture is the way you're able to make sense of the world, then you're an artist and that's what you're meant to do. And no examiner can take that away from you. That's the thing. Well, I think it's awfully important that I should point out in this moment, Bob, very serious matter, that I'm a GCSE mathematics examiner. But I think GCSEs are terribly important. Now I'm joking. I'm not joking about being an examiner, I am, but I completely agree with you. They're not important at all. And I'm a GCSE maths examiner. And thank God somebody like you, someone of your ilk has just told the truth, the whole truth. And there's no point anyone listening to me. I'm just an examiner, but they'll listen to you. (laughs) They will listen to you because of your work and your work proof. Your proof is right there for everybody to see. Everyone can see your work. And you just said it right there. You just said it. Well done. I'm I'm going to shut up because I cannot finish it any better than that way. You're absolutely right that 
the proof is in the pudding. It's your work, it's your character, it's your attitude. And that's exactly what has come to the fore with you, particularly during the last couple of years. Thank you so much for the time that you've generously given. I kind of feel guilty because you need to get back to painting because we we want to see more. But you're so eloquent. You are so eloquent as well. And you can see that your intelligence and your endeavor and your background is all sort of fused together in this melting pot. We're back to the crucible, aren't we? All of this stuff has come together at the right time and you just stuck to your beliefs. You were resolute, you were a real man and, and you told the truth and you did it in the best way you knew how through your art. And we're super grateful to you. And please, will you tell everybody where they can find more of your work before you go? Yes. So obviously, you can find me on Twitter at Bob's Cartoons. I'm also on Getter, on Instagram. I have a Telegram channel. And my website is the best place to go, really, to see everything. That's bobmoran.co.uk, where you can, if you're a publisher or if you've got any kind of website or even just making a leaflet or a blog, you can download high-res versions of my work and use it completely free. There's no charge, syndication charge or anything like that. You can order prints on there, framed or unframed, and you can buy the original artworks as well. Thank you very much indeed. All the links will be beneath the podcast when this comes out. And just finally, a personal note from me. Thank you so much. One of the roles that we haven't touched on that you've done is you've really provided a good cheer, good heart and good spirit to those of us who are fighting. And you make us feel just that little bit better when we're suffering and we're struggling for the right reasons. And thank you very, very much indeed for that. Your your work has been extremely powerful. And just know that you're helping the best people do the right things for the right reasons. And even if that's all it is, and it's not, but even if that's all it is, that's huge because you're keeping the people who are doing the real work going. And that's, I cannot thank you enough for that. Cheers, Bob. Oh, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Sarah. And I'd just like to send all my best wishes to your listeners, to all of your community, to all of the homeschool parents out there doing a wonderful thing. And I'm so glad to be part of this community of homeschoolers now. It's great. And yeah, keep going and stay strong. And lots of love to all of you. We will. Thanks, Bob. You're our champion. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Bob Moran, the Bob. Yes, Bob's cartoons. There's only one Bob. You know who this is. Go check out his work at bobmoran.co.uk. And of course, you can find him on Twitter at Bob's Cartoons. And remember, I say this uh, almost every time. And if not, I should say it more. Your children can either be schooled or they can be educated. Either schooled or educated. And these things are mutually exclusive. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 